message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. I have been looking forward to being with you this morning for quite a while. We have been praying, of course, for Pastor Darrell and the boys and for the church as well. You've been on my heart uh, pretty much every day, and I'm just grateful that the day has come that we can be able to spend some time together. If you don't mind, let's pray one more time. Father, in Jesus' name, I want to thank you for this morning. We want to thank you for the fact that, as somebody has already mentioned in this service, that we are forever safe and secure in you. I want to pray that for the next few minutes as we talk about uh, what you have done in my life and in the lives of others as well, that Lord God, you speak to all of us and that your name will be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm here with uh, my son, um, Jonathan, if you can wave a little bit. His mom and our our younger son are in Kenya right now with Christian Camp, whom you know very well, working at an orphanage. We have an orphanage in Kenya with 24 children. We'll be there in about a week and a a couple of days. We're looking forward to that. So I thank you for helping Christian uh, find his way to the orphanage over there. Now, Pastor Darrell asked me to share my my testimony with you. I was speaking at a place... um, where Pastor Darrow happened to be there, and somebody, when I was done speaking, I was not sharing my testimony. When I was done speaking, somebody said to me, can you tell us your story? So I told my story in about five minutes, and then Darrow asked me if I could come in and share that here as well. And that's what we'll be doing this morning. But I thought we would begin by looking at a passage of Scripture from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. And I'll start reading from verse 12. Daniel chapter 3 from verse 12. Now, what is going on in this passage is this. The Babylonians said by King Nebuchadnezzar have come to Jerusalem and they have destroyed it and taken a lot of people captive to uh, Babylon in exile. And he has set up an image, a very big image, and he wants everybody to bow down and worship this image. Now, this is obviously a problem for people who, are, who know about the living God and who are used to worshipping God. And so they are in trouble right here. So we begin reading from verse, uh, as we begin reading from verse 12, that is what's going on. That's the setting. Then verse 12 says this. Verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This was the first... Uh, law firm in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, (laughs) who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. He's giving them another chance. Go do it this time and you'll be fine. 
But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then these really painful words, he says this to them, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Those are truly painful words, given the condition that these people are in. Like I said, they are in Babylon, in captivity. They had watched the city of Jerusalem destroyed before their eyes. Nebuchadnezzar had gone into the temple and taken the sacred articles of the temple and brought them back and put them into the temple of his own God. So when he says, what God is able to rescue you, what can they say when they have been defeated right there before their eyes? They've seen it all happen. They're in, in, in captivity. And if you look, for example, in, in Psalm, 30, Psalm 137, which is a very difficult psalm to read, you see what the Jews were thinking at this time with these kind of words being thrown at them. They said, you can just hear these people mocking them. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. They are thinking back about Jerusalem and, and, and God being with them and all that. Then on the, on the poplars, we hang our harps, for there our captors asked, for, asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. Can you sing those songs you used to sing in Zion? Just mocking them. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. And it goes on and on. So they are being mocked here. And Nebuchadnezzar says to them, I can do whatever I want to do with you. What God can rescue you from my hand? Very painful words. Verse 16. I love the response that they gave him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Then verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Our God is able. As a Baptist, I love to preach that message. Our God is able, and he indeed is able. But what about what they say next? Even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we want you to know that we are not going to worship your idols. How do you move from our God is able to, even if he doesn't. How could they stand so strong, faithful to God, given the condition that they were in at this moment? Now, I'm not going to preach on that because our purpose is different this morning, is to share my testimony. But I want to begin to give you an answer to that question. And it is this. How you move from our God is able to even if he doesn't and still remain strong and focused on God is by remembering what you know about who God is and what he has done in the past. Because what he has done in the past, he will do again in the future. There are many moments when that doesn't seem to be the case at all. 
doesn't seem to be the case that God is there. We seem to be all alone in what we are trying to accomplish or to do. But that is not the case when we remember what God has done in the past and that he's faithful to do what he has promised in the future as well. That's what we live on. There are moments when those warm feelings about who God is are not there at all. We feel like we are alone once again. What we do in those moments, we cling to what we know to be true about God. That is what we do and that's how we move on. It's a message, unfortunately, that many pastors do not preach. But I know Pastor Darrow is not like that. I've listened to him online and I've talked to him and I know that he tries to be faithful to God's word and hopefully we'll be, we'll be doing that uh, this morning as well. Now, my testimony. I was born and raised in Kenya. I was born into a family that was uh, very cohesive. My, my early, my early, the, mem- the earliest memories I have of my childhood are really pleasant one I can really, the one that is so vivid in my mind was um, there was this outfit that I really wanted, a pair of shorts and shirt that matched, and I really wanted those, and uh, my mom um, did not want to buy those for me, so she bought me something different, and I was very disappointed. I remember my sister, who was a, little, a few years older, maybe six years older than me, telling me what to do. She said to me, this is what we need to do. We had, uh, we didn't have uh, the kind of toilets you have in your homes. We had the uh, um, uh, pit latrines. She said to me, you go to the toilet, in the pit latrine, and, and drop your shots in there. Then we'll come, and she coached me. Then we'll, come, we'll go back into the house crying, both of us crying, <laughs> because you lost your shots, which is exactly what we did. Then we went to the store, and my mom bought me what I wanted. I have some very wise sisters. <laughs> so this was... Uh, this was my life growing up. It was a lot of fun. I used to look forward to my dad coming home. He was a loving man. I remember him teaching me how to draw, uh, how to write, and, uh, and just uh, playing sick and hard with him. It was just, just a wonderful time when I was growing up. But when I was about five, six years old, maybe, maybe around maybe even seven, I came to realize that something was seriously wrong in the family. My dad had a secret life that he lived with some other women and drinking and all that. And my life began to unravel, to change quite a bit. I remember my, my grandmother, uh, my mom's mom, coming over one evening and my mom explaining to me and my sister, my advisor, that we were going to go and live with our grandmother for a while because she needed to work out, work out something uh, at home. I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay to to stay at home. I liked being at home. But I had no choice, so we left and went to live with my grandmother, which was about two hours away. And for a long time, it seemed like eternity to me, I did not see my my dad, my mom, my my other siblings. My mom and dad had eight children. And it was, uh, those were very difficult moments for me that whole time. Because I remember having some really vivid dreams that everybody in my family had died. I don't know where they came from, but it was a traumatic experience for me. So you can imagine my joy when one day my mom and my brothers and sisters showed up at my grandma- grandmother's home 
uh, without my dad, though he didn't, he didn't come. Nothing was ever explained to us as children. So when my mom came, we just continued living there uh, at my, our grandparents' home, which we loved. And my grandmother was a very respected person you know, in that village. Everybody, when there was a village meeting, what she said was what was done. They respected her that much. Um, she also used to sniff tobacco, and she ran, if she ran out of it, we would walk long distances, even at night, to get it for her. She could not live without it. And she was also very much afraid of death for some strange... She had some, she had some superstitious ideas about what death is, and so we never really talked about it at home. And she was very opinionated. When she would come visit us at home, she would bring her own tube of, tube of uh, toothpaste because she didn't like the way we squeezed uh, uh, tubes of uh, toothpaste. She would bring her own. Um, so she was, I was very um, proud of being associated with her because she was a highly respected person. So we stayed there for a few years. And then one day, we boarded her truck, headed back home. They were, they were working behind the scenes to get my mom and my dad reconciled. So we headed back home, about two hours away again from, from where my grandparents lived. And, but when we got home, it was very obvious this time that something was drastically wrong with the family, with, between my mom and dad. They argued and fought every night. My dad, whom I had grown to love so much, had turned into a monster. And for some strange reason, he took out his anger and frustration on me. So at this time, I would see him coming home in the evening, and I would run away and sleep outside, and he didn't care that I wasn't at home, even through the night. And so life was totally different for us, and there was no way my mom was going to be able to endure that, raising all those children by herself. And so what she did was, one day, a neighbor came over and told us that my mom, our mom had ran away, that she had left. Now, we didn't have any shoes, didn't wear any shoes, and uh, I had learned how to identify my mom's footprints on the sand because the roads were not paved, so I, I, could, I could tell where she had gone. So I followed her footprints. She had walked several miles to, to, the, to the farthest bus stop that she could find. I walked all the way to that place, and she was gone. She wasn't there. I remember crying myself, almost asleep over there, and then walking back home in the evening, and finding my oldest sister trying to comfort my, our younger siblings, we didn't know what to do. My dad did not show up for a, for a few days, and there was no food to eat in the house. And when I said there was no, there's nothing to eat, nothing, there was nothing to eat in the house, I always find that I, I didn't know that many people do not know what the word nothing means until I came to the U.S., these days, I see people who open a maybe you've never done this, but you've probably heard of people who do this kind of thing. They open a closet full of, packed with clothes. And what do they say? I have nothing to wear. <laughs> then they go to the pantry. It's stacked with stuff. You cannot fit anything into that pantry. And what do they say? There's nothing to eat here. They go to the fridge, which is also full, and they say, there's nothing to drink here. They, they, then they grab a drink and um, a, a bag of potato chips. They go sit on the couch. And what they, they flip through 250 channels. And what do they say? There's nothing to watch today. Today we have some of the leading scientists telling us that the universe came from nothing. It's amazing. People here don't know what the word nothing means. So when I say there was nothing to eat, I mean nothing. 
not even sought in the house. And so my sister sustained us by selling illegally brewed beer. That's, so that's, that was her job. And we were kicked out of school, and we stayed like that. My dad would show up whenever he wanted to. He would come late at night and leave early in the morning. And so we were basically on our own with our mom gone. But finally, she came back. The same lady who told us that my, our mom had run away, they were very good friends, came over and told us that our mom had come back. So we went to a cornfield near the same place where she had boarded the bus. There was a, a large uh, cornfield there. We went there, and we found my mom hiding in the cornfield. She did not want to risk being seen by my dad. And so when she saw us, this was the first time that I ever saw my mom cry, shedding tears because of the way we looked. And she told us, I have come back to get you, but what I want you to do is to go back home and... Tomorrow, I'll come get you. We said, no, we are not going anywhere. We are not leaving you. So we all spent the night there huddled in the cornfield together through the night. In the morning, we went to the local chief's uh, office. A chief is not not what most people have in mind, like uh, some village person with some um, funny clothes and all that. This is a government official. So we went to his office, and there were some elders from from the neighborhood who had been called together to decide our fate. Uh, My dad was supposed to show up. He had been summoned, but he he didn't come. They waited for him for a long time. He didn't come. This is what was decided in this this chief's um, office. They decided that my mom was going to keep some of the kids and my dad would keep the rest of the kids. Now, in my tribal group, what we do is we name our children after both sides of the family. The first son is named, the oldest son, the firstborn is named after the father's father, and the second son after the mother's father, and if you get a third son after the father's oldest brother, and then you just keep going down the line like that. The same thing uh, with, with the girls. They decided that the, my dad would keep the kids that were named on his side of the family. That turned out to be me, because I was named after his dad, and my oldest sister was named after his mom. And the others were too young to be left with him, so he was just going to keep the two of us. One of the elders took us from the chief's office and all the way back home. When we got there, we found out that the locks had been changed so we could not go in. And we waited by the door for a long time until my dad showed up. And when the elder stepped forward and explained to him what was, hap- what was happening, the, this, I heard these words from my, my dad. He said this, Take them, away where, from, take them back where you got them. I don't want them. That's the last time I saw my, my dad. The last word I ever heard him say, take them back where you got them. I do not want them. So this elder took us back to the chief's office where my mom was waiting. And when we got there, they said, uh, we have given him the chance. He has, he has uh, refused to take the children. So they are all yours to my mom, who had no job, no marketable job skills, no education, and most importantly, no home. What she had done was she had gone to a place where there are many, many farms. She had talked to people who owned those farms, and what they would do is they would come to the farms. They had built um, some little shack, maybe 12 by 12, made of uh, mud and sticks and uh, a dirt floor and grass, uh, grass roof. 
So my mom had talked to them, and they had allowed us to live in those shacks when they were not working on the farm. So we would, we would come, we would, uh, they would tell us when they were coming, and we would move to another one. I still remember the very first one that we lived in, with three stones in the middle for, 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 a, for a fireplace. I woke up one morning, my mom and my sisters were sleeping on one side on the floor, my, myself and my brothers on the other side. I woke up one morning to look at where they were sleeping, and there was a large poisonous snake very close to where they were. And I screamed, and we all ran out. I, I tried to persuade my mom to let me go back in and kill it, and she would not let me. We called a neighbor. He looked in there, and he was too frightened to go in. He just ran away. It wasn't killed, and we had to, sp- to sleep in the same shack that night uh, because it was raining and there was no place to go. What I remember of that night is trying so hard to keep the fire going. Uh, we would take turns to keep the fire going to make sure that we were all safe. Uh, uh, during, during those nights, when we would see um, some rats or some, some animals like that in the house, we would sleep soundly because we knew there was no snake around. Those were difficult, difficult moments. But for me, I was glad that I was away from my, my dad's tyranny. And part of my job at this time was chasing giraffes and zebras out of those cornfields, which was a lot of fun. Uh, I thought every kid did that. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun to, to having that kind of a job. But then there was a famine. We lived like that, by the way, for several years. It wasn't just for a month or two weeks or something like that. It was for maybe four or five years. That's how we lived, without, without a home, no school, nothing. Then there was a famine in that area, and my mom was again forced to go and to, to another place and find something to do. So she got a job as a, as a, as a housemaid in somebody's home, making maybe $4, $5 a month, something like that. Very difficult life. But when we got to that place, she was able to speak to the school administrators and we were able to go back to school, to be enrolled back in school. But she started, she, she would work during the day and she was working many, many, many hours from about 7 in the morning to about 11 at night. So I was in charge. My two older sisters, by this time, had gotten married and left home. Very smart girls. Um, so I was in charge. I was, I was the third born. So I was in charge of everybody with, with my mom working, cooking, cleaning, collecting firewood and water and all that. That, uh, that was my life and going to school at the same time, being kicked out of school. School was not free in Kenya. So we, we were kicked. I was, I was away from school more than I was in school. So if you saw me at the, this time and say to me that God would someday send me to the kinds of places he has sent me to preach the gospel, I really would have thought you were crazy because there was no way somebody like me would have ended up even, even being standing before you this morning. It's just a miracle uh, of, of God. So... In this place, I'm going to school, being kicked out of school every now and then. And then my mom started getting very sick for some uh, strange reason. I, I remember one day hearing her groan in bed. And she had come from work in that condition. She was groaning in bed. She was in a lot of pain. And so I ran to a neighbor's home and rang the doorbell. And then the man of the house came out and yelled at me at the top of his voice. And then he dared me to touch that bell again. He went back inside. He never knew what I was there to do, uh, to tell him. I need, and then I was, I was too confused to understand that he, didn't, he wasn't going to help me. So I just kept waiting. And then I figured out he wasn't coming out at all. So I went to another 
strangers home and told them I needed help. My mom was very sick. This man came over and said, stay with your mama, go get help. He went to, to another neighbor's home who had a car. Cars were not that common in that area. So he, he, he brought his friend who had a car and they took my mom to the hospital. It happened, she, she was treated. And then it happened again. This time it was during the day and my mom was very, very sick. She was not able to go to work that day. And I remember walking her to the hospital. It took us a long time to get to the hospital because she kept wanting to lie down. When we got to the hospital, they said that her appendix had uh, burst open and she needed surgery immediately. All I, I remember is my mom waving me, waving me goodbye as, uh, and telling me that God will provide because again, at home, I have little brothers and sisters and there is no food and now my mom is in the hospital. Uh, so I went back. Somebody, a missionary from the U.S. had given me a copy of the Word of God, the Bible, and I was reading it. They didn't tell me to start reading from the Gospel of John or from, from, from the Gospel of Mark. So I started reading from Genesis 1, 1, 1, and just kept reading the whole thing. So I go home and I say to my brothers and sisters, and by the way, this whole time we're doing all this, my mom was not a believer, my dad wasn't, obviously, and nobody in my family among all my relatives, and when I talk about relatives in Africa, I'm, t I'm speaking about a huge group of people, I did not know anybody who was a believer. The only people we knew who were, who were born-again Christians were people who, uh, who, had, who had some very strange ways of doing things. The women wore long dresses and they covered their heads. They would never take their children to the hospital. Many of the women died in childbirth and the kids died of irritable diseases. And the last thing I wanted in my life was to be, to be identified with people who believed in the Bible. I, didn't, I, I, I could not see how that could make sense to anybody. It was just a death sentence to whoever accepted it. So, but this, this missionary gave me the Bible and I was reading through it. And, um, and then I'm... And it was beginning to look very different. There really is a God who cares about human beings. And I, I get home, my mom is in the hospital, and I tell my brothers and sisters, listen, in this book, it says that God provides for his people. God cares for his people. And what we are going to do is, we are going to pray and see what he's going to do for us. We had, at this time, we had... Uh, not eaten maybe for two, three days, no food at all, nothing. So we were obviously really hungry. And I gathered my brothers and sisters together, and I prayed, asking God to intervene, to help us. And of course, we, we, we prayed and fasted, obviously, right? <laughs> <laughs> prayed and fasted, and then I said to, to them, let me go and look for help. I went, I left home, and went and knocked on the door of a missionary. When I knocked on the door, the wife comes out, she looks at me, I was crying so much with the uh, stuff in my nose and all that, and she goes back inside, comes back with Kleenex, and she wipes my eyes and my, my nose, and then she invites me into the house. And I sat at her kitchen table, she started telling me about the U.S. and about her family, just to calm me down. Finally, she said to me, after she had given me some food, she said to me, can you tell me what you wanted to tell me when you came here? And I said to her, I said, um, my mom is very sick, and she's in the hospital. I was wondering if you can give me a job and so that I can make some money and then go and buy food for my brothers and sisters. But before you give me the job, I wanted you to pay me first, give me the money, and then I'll come back and, and work for you. She went to, the, to her fridge and took out anything that was edible, put it in a bag, and then she gave me some money. She said to me, you keep coming, 
until your mom is out of the hospital. And then she and her husband came over to confirm the story. And sure enough, what I had told her was true. So these families took it upon themselves to help us um, um, weather the storm as my mom was in the hospital, and even after she came out of the hospital. But now there was another problem. She could not work, and we were kicked out of the, uh, the room that we were renting, a very small room, so we were again homeless. And my mom and I went to the forest at night. It was illegal to do this, but what else do you do? We went to the forest at night, and we cut down poles, and we built a house. I was very proud of that. I still have a picture of it. I wish I had brought, brought the, a picture of that house. We built the house where, that we, lived, we, we moved into, and this family continued helping us um, with, uh, with, with food. Again, this whole time, my, my mom is not a believer. Nobody in my family is a believer. My grandparents, nobody. But I had, by this time, become a very... Uh, very strong believer in God because of that experience and the fact that I, was, I, kept, I still kept reading the Bible and spending many hours in the forest behind my home praying, praying that God would share the light of the gospel into the lives of, of my, my, my mom and um, my siblings as well. One day my mom agreed to come to church with me and when the altar call was given, she was the only person that day who gave her life to Christ then everybody else in the family followed suit. So they, today, they are, all, they are all believers. Although, my, uh, as I will tell you, my mom passed away a, a couple of years ago, but she died a, believe, a believer. So we are now, our life be, begins to, uh, to, take, uh, to change for the better because of the help we were getting from this missionary family. Actually, the very first time I shared my testimony, I was invited to speak in Florida. This missionary couple has, are retired now. They live in, uh, in Florida. And they invited me to speak at a retirement center for missionaries where he is a chaplain. And he wanted me to go and speak to them. Instead of preaching to people who have been reading the Bible all their lives and serving as missionaries, I decided to share my testimony for the very first time. It was actually just too painful for me to share it. This is the first time I'm sharing my testimony to a group of people other than that group um, uh, in, in Florida. And um, I, I've talk to a few people uh, every now and then on one-on-one situations and all that, but never formal, I've never formally shared my testimony because of the, it, it, in the beginning it was very hard for me to even, even talk about some of the experiences that, we, that, that, we had, that I had uh, growing up. So this family, when I finished, uh, I, I finished primary school, being kicked out of in and out of school, when I finished primary school, I, got, I went and got my, my results. To go to high school, there's an exam that you have to take when, when you're in eighth grade. Every student in the whole country takes that exam, and if you fail that exam, it defines your life. It's like failing at life. But I had done very well. My, um, I was tied on the, uh, for the top spot with another student. But as I was taking my results home with me, I knew that I was not going to be able to go to high school. I had done well, but there was no way I was, my mom was going to afford to send me to to, uh, to high school, she could not pay for primary school, which was much, much cheaper. How was she going to send me to high school? But I got home. But before, before I got to the house, I went to the, my usual uh, place of prayer and prayed and just showed my results to God. I don't know what you want to do with this, but um, he, here I am. And then I went home, and it so happened that another missionary from the U.K., had come to visit us in our little shack, the house that we had built. Now, we didn't get many visitors, as you can imagine, in that place. So the fact that she had come, and on this day, 
is a miracle in itself because she said to me, what are you holding in your hand? I said, these are my results, my high school results. So I, uh, she said, can, can I see? I gave, I gave the piece of paper to her. And she said, you have done really well. She said, guess what? I got a, a, a letter from my friends in England who said to me, who asked me to look for a student who has done well in school and not, is not able to pay uh, his way through high school or college. She said, and you are the student for me, so prepare to go to high school. So this family, whom I still haven't met, paid for me to go through, to go through high school. When I finished uh, high school, um, I worked in this whole time. I, wasn't, I, I was so glad I was never sent home for lack of school fees. It was a very new experience for me. I was waiting for, I would wake up in the morning thinking, oh, will they send me home today? Or what? I, I actually began to miss it because you know, I, I didn't like kids. It's so strange. You pay to go to class and when, when class is canceled, you feel great. You feel wonderful, right? Never, you've never done that, right? <laughs> well, I did. Um, but anyway, so I finished high school and I worked in the slums of Nairobi with a missionary from Canada. And while I was working there, there was a pastor who had moved to this slum. It's a huge slum with maybe a million people uh, living in it in very poor circumstances. And I was, there, there are many, many street children. We would go to the streets and collect kids who had no idea who their parents were. And we would teach them how to read and write. It actually became a school that is still um, going on. So when working in the slums, the church that I was going to, which, which we were st- studying at that, at that moment, the pastor is one person I, had met, I have met who had the gift of evangelism. He could lead almost anybody to Christ. He would start early in the morning, Monday morning, go, f- go from uh, shark to shark in the slums, sharing the gospel and leading many people to Christ. Then he invited me to accompany him. And I would go with him and he would say, every now and then he would say, by the, time, by, by the way, when we get to this house, you, you, you will share the gospel. So I started doing that. And then we would have crusades in the evening, where he, or during the weekend, maybe on Sunday evening, where we would have a lot of, uh, we would sing. Then we have maybe a couple thousand people gathered. There was nothing, there was not much going on in the slum. So people, when there was, there was somebody singing, people would, would come to see what was happening. And then the pastor would preach, and I saw many, many people coming to Christ. And I thought, this is, this is wonderful. Reading people to Christ is, 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 is so fulfilling. Because I had, I had seen many people come to Christ as I was sharing from, uh, from house to house with this pastor. Then one day, we are sitting right there on the platform. Uh, he's, we are singing, and we're waiting for the pastor to preach. He comes back and he says to me, by the way, you're preaching today. <laughs> and I panicked. So I told, I told my friends, keep singing. Look for maybe five more songs because I need to find a Bible. I didn't even have a Bible on me. I prepared a message. I preached. And I, up to this day, I don't know what I preached from or what I said. But people came to Christ. And that was my introduction to the ministry. But at this time, I also got a scholarship to study medicine in New, in New York. And so, and that was my, my goal. I, there's nothing else in life that I wanted to do other than study medicine. So now I have a scholarship and I'm going to study uh, medicine. But um, I also had many, many questions about the Bible, especially about evil and suffering and unanswered un, un, un questions and all this. How do you continue to worship God and, and be faithful to Him, be honest with Him? when there are so many problems in life. I had those types of questions in my mind and I was asking anybody who would listen. Now, I wasn't about to give up my faith. I had seen God do enough in my life to know that God was there and He really cared. Let me just give you one example. 
you take your exam they are on, uh, on 8th grade to go to high school before you finish high school in 12th grade you take another exam that every student takes you fail at that and it's like failing at life once again so I took the exam when during the time that I was taking the exam I took a physics exam I wanted to be a medical doctor and I felt I did not do well at all and to make it worse, the next exam was leaked. Some school was able to get, they were able to get answers ahead of time. So that exam was cancelled. They had to send in a replacement exam. And it took time to, to distribute those exams all over the country. So we had to wait for a few days, maybe 10 days or so, for the replacement exam. So I have taken physics, and I felt like I failed. And now I'm waiting for the replacement exam. And as I'm waiting there um, for, for the replacement exam, I was devastated because here I was, God had given me the chance, he had opened the door for me to do well in school, he had paid for me to go through high school, and I had blown it, I had blown it, I was going to fail, and I could not eat, I could not sleep, I was having a really difficult time, I lost so much weight within a very short time, and one evening, one evening as I, as I, as I, I managed to fall asleep, and I had a vision, I don't know whether you believe me or not, but this really, truly happened in my life. Somebody came to me in a vision at night and said this to me. Here is what you need to know for the next exam. Five, I think four or five questions, essay questions uh, for, for a history exam. And they were all, I, I got up, I wrote them down, one after the other num uh, numbered in the right way. And then I started studying for those exams. We were waiting for the exam to be distributed across the country. When the exam came, and I opened the exam and looked inside of the essay questions. They were the exact questions that had been given in a vision in the right order. And so I knew God was there. He had provided for me and my, and my family. And he had answered my prayer in such a direct way. So I was not about to give up my faith. But I was wondering, how do you continue to worship God? How do you answer people who raise issues about suffering and all that? And when you are suffering yourself, how do you go through this? Uh, through that, that whole experience. So I had those questions. And now I have a scholarship to go and study medicine. Um, this same friend, missionary friend of mine, said to me, it's going to be very difficult for you to go to a university in the U.S. without having these questions answered. He said, so go to a Bible college first, get these questions answered, then go on and, and study medicine. So I left Kenya and went to a Bible college in Pennsylvania. Uh, but by the way, how much time do I have? I'm from Kenya. I can do this for the rest of the day. <laughs> how much time do we have? Huh? We're good. Okay, we are good. All right. <laughs> um, so I went to, to the college, the Bible college in Pennsylvania. And when I was there, I, w I, turned, I was listening to the radio, and I heard a preacher called Ravi Zacharias. How many of you ever heard of Ravi Zacharias? And he was the first person I ever heard of who tried to take the questions I had seriously and grapple with them and try to answer them. And so I became intrigued at the approach that he takes to share the gospel. And I got a chance to meet him and I asked him, what, what do I need to, to do to be able to learn to preach the way, to, to understand the Bible the way you do? He told me it's called apologetics. He suggested a school in California where I went and uh, I decided that I was going to do that instead, that God was calling me to do that, to preach the gospel instead of, instead of uh, doing, uh, studying medicine. So I decided to go to, a, to the school, as he suggested, in California called uh, Talbot Seminary. 
to study apologetics and philosophy and all that so that I could be able to preach to people who had the same kinds of questions that I had, which is what um, I have been doing um, ever since. Now I, I went there, my wife and I got married, we moved to California. After graduation, we joined RZIM, which is where I work, and I, we go to all kinds of places, especially to skeptics on university campuses to present the gospel. That is what, that is what we do, and I'm so grateful to God uh, for that. But I told you about my, my, uh, my, my grandmother. Let me back up a little bit because I think this is a, a truly fascinating story about the power of God and his ability to change lives. Because when I found out about God and about salvation and that he really does answer prayer, I wanted my grandmother to come to know this God. Because like I said, I loved her because she was like a second mom to me. She had taken care of us uh, when, when my mom and dad were having so many problems, and I wanted her to come to know about Jesus Christ because of her fear of death, her, uh, her habits and all that. And so, but when I shared the gospel with her, when I told her about salvation, she was very disappointed in me. She said this to me. I'll just say it to you the way she said it. She said this to me. The only reason you have fallen for the white man's religion is because you are too young to understand what these people did to us. She had watched the colonialists and the missionaries come in at the same time. The colonialists took over everything in the country and forced my grandmother and her family into a, into a reservation. And she did not want anything to do with the white man's religion. She was very bitter about that because she could not tell the difference between the two. Because when you are religious in Africa, in, within a community, everybody follows that system. Everybody belongs to that system. So for her, every white person belonged to this system that did these kinds of uh, uh, atrocities against them. So she didn't want to hear anything about, about salvation. But, I, but she was watching my life. And I got, when I left, before I left Kenya to come to the U.S. to go to the Bible college, I took another chance to share the gospel with her very clearly. I said to her, um, I, I told her as, as, as well as I could understand, I said there's a big difference between what people do with the faith and what the faith itself is. And I tried to explain as best as I could, but I wasn't really getting anywhere with her. I left, came, came to the U.S., then I called back home. And she happened, this was about maybe six and a half years later, I called back home. She happened to be there. And she says this to me, she, she says to me, when she, she comes to the phone, she says this to me. Child, that's what she used to call me. I heard what you said about asking Jesus to be my savior. She said, I tried it. And you know what? It worked. He said, the moment I asked him to do that, he instantly took away from me the desire to sniff tobacco. I have not touched it ever since. And then she said this, long before you were born, I used to make purses. And I have made one for your wife by which she can remember me until we are together on the other side. If you knew anything about my grandmother or even about my relatives, you would know that nobody in my family spoke like that. It was just the power of God to change lives. And then she, she, didn't, she never met my wife because my wife and I got married in New Jersey. So she never met my wife. My grandmother died just two months after that, after that conversation. When I went back home and I asked the people there whether they knew that my, my grandmother had become a believer, nobody knew that. Nobody knew that she, that she had given her life to Christ. If she had died, 
without me knowing, without her telling me that she had given her life to Christ, today I'd be thinking that she never did. This is an encouragement to you. If there is somebody you truly care about, you have shared the gospel with them as clearly as you can, and they understand what the message is, you never know what God is doing in their lives. Regardless of what, what, what um, they may present before you, that word continues to eat up on the inside of this person and you can just rest content that God will take care of it. We never know what God is doing in the person, in the life of the person with whom we have shared the gospel. So um, I decided that I was going to um, leave the, 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 this um, college, go to seminary and work with, uh, with, with, with Ravi Zacharias. I have gone to all kinds of places to preach the gospel and I have seen God do amazing work, many people coming to Christ through this whole process. And so um, let me finish by going back to the same place where we began with uh, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and all that these, the Jews were going through in captivity. And the question, we are right back to the same question. What happens... Or how do we handle situations where we feel like we are truly on our own, like nothing is happening? I have just shared with you the stories, I, which I think are amazing, what God has done in my life to rescue me and, and to, to uh, make it possible for me to do what I do today, which is to try as best as I can to honor his name. But you get to the point where you remember those kinds of things and they give you strength to keep on going. And like I said, there are moments when no shopping trip, when no um, a walk in the park or any of that will, will fix what is going on in your life. What do you do at that moment? You look at what God has done and you trust him for the future, for what is coming. And I had to do that in uh, November of 2012 when I got a phone call. I had gone to Connecticut to preach and I got into the hotel room. I was uh, hanging my clothes and t- took out my Bible and put it on, on the, on the um, desk so I could review my message and all that. When I got a phone call from Kenya in the evening, and they said this, Mom, my mom had just passed away at the, age, at the age of 62. And I can tell you, this wave of emotion that washed, that washed over me, and how uh, disheartening that whole thing was. When I was 19 years old, my best friend, we had grown up together, did everything together, was diagnosed with leukemia, and he passed away, and we had just become believers at the same time. And God gave me a peace that I could not understand. I, was, I had a lot, of, a lot of sorrow, but heaven seemed like it's just, the, just uh, next door. It was so close to me. And I, I had, God carried me through that whole experience. It was very, very different when my mom passed away. A cloud of darkness just fell over the whole family. And I, as I traveled uh, to Kenya, for the funeral. I have spoken, I have done funerals for, for people that I truly cared for and, and, and God has been able to carry me through that. But in this moment, when I stood before my mom's casket, remembering all that she had sacrificed to make it possible for us to live, I was overcome with emotion. I was supposed to speak at the funeral and I could not. I could not speak. And didn't matter what I did, nothing seemed to be coming to me. And um, again, when those moments come, when we look around and no help seems to be coming, we seem like we are all alone. We remember and we cling 
to what we know to be true about the God who called us and the God who saved us. And then you know what he does? He is able to carry us through that whole experience. My mom died at the age of 62. At, at just the moment when we were able, we would have been able to help her live a comfortable life in this world. And yet, God, for some reason, chose to rest her at that moment. He was going to take care of her, not us. That was devastating to us. But God still continues to give us strength to go on even as we reflect on what has happened before, what has happened now, and we remember on what he has done in the past, trusting that he truly is in control and will see us through even what is to come. And I would encourage you as a church, regardless of what you go through, that you will rise up and unite and seek God um, like you've never done before. And you will see God do great and wonderful things in this congregation that will be a testimony of his greatness and his power. Because what the devil means for evil, God turns for good. And I pray that that will be true for all of you in this congregation. Remember, you are in our minds, in our hearts. We pray for, every, for, for, for you um, almost on a daily basis. Thank you so much for listening so patiently. I'm just now going to pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord God, we thank you so much that you really are in control. And even when that doesn't seem to be the case, Lord, you have done enough in the past. You loved us so much for us to be able to know that we can trust you even where, even in the darkness, dear God. I pray for everybody here. There may be people who have been doubtful, who may have wandered away from your love, who may have doubted you, oh God. And I pray that the devil will not succeed in planting those lies. I pray, Lord, even right from this pulpit, from this um, platform, dear God, that the presence and power of God may be here. And that, Lord, you will hear the cries of your people that your name will be honored and uplifted and that, Lord God, your presence will be here. Pray for Daryl and the boys and ask in the name of Jesus Christ that you will give them the strength and the presence that they need, that, Lord, you will give them a joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding, that they will be able to walk through this whole experience and come out stronger in their faith and uh, in, in their commitment to you. We are grateful, dear God, that we are forever safe with you. In Jesus' name we pray. God bless you. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.